Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 1st, 2019, and my guest is historian and author Jill Lepore, the David Woods Kemper 41 Professor of American History at Harvard University. She is a staff writer for The New Yorker. Her latest book is These Truths, A History of the United States. Our conversation for today draws on a recent essay she wrote for Foreign Affairs, A New Americanism, Why a Nation Needs a National Story. Jill, welcome to Econ Talk. Hey, thanks for having me. And I should add, you have a new book coming out, uh, This America, The Case for the Nation, which uh, this essay is is in the same spirit of. And you opened your piece talking about the last part of the 20th century as a time when nationalism was on the wane and historians were not very interested in it. Why do you think that was the case, both of those points? Why was nationalism on the wane and why had historians lost interest? I'm not so convinced that nationalism was on the wane. It's a little bit difficult to see, you know, you don't enter the room with the candle, you enter the room in the dark. You have to have the historian there to light the candle to see it. And historians really weren't paying an awful lot of attention to nationalism, and I think largely wishing it away, as as many people were. I would class political scientists in that group as well. But if you think about that moment in the 1980s, there are a lot of different forces that might lead American intellectuals in particular, but intellectuals in in Western Europe as well, to come to the conclusion that nationalism was all but dead, especially in the West, Uh, kind of a stock-taking moment in which people who were leading lives that were highly global, uh, people who were affiliated with new global studies institutes, the, the 80s really was the rise of global studies kind of replacing Area studies programs, which had you know come out of the national security state in the 1950s, part of the Cold War, those were replaced to a large degree in in the 1980s and 1990s with global studies programs. People were really interested in globalism, thinking about global trade, thinking about the success of global institutions, uh, and so there's a kind of uh, the, the especially after the the triumph of the fall, the Berlin Wall, and the end of the Cold War, a sense that the world was turning a page away from the kind of Manichaean battle between communism uh, and Americanism and toward a new, more fully global world order. And that nationalism had run its course, that nationalism had a historical origin and it was about to have a historical end. And you can think about the start of that, that run that it had, I guess you could pick a lot of different start dates uh, my first thought was 1914 is not a bad start date. You can think about the 1870s with the consolidation of Germany and Italy around that time. Uh, and that by 1985 or so, which is when you, you talk about, was it 86, a speech by uh, Carl Degler, that, that that nationalism was was being neglected, Degler's point was in, in a speech, uh, you could feel like it was a scourge that had finally been eliminated with the horrors of World War II. And I think certainly in the intellectual class, nobody, nobody had any interest in seeing it rise again. Yeah, although there's another force that we should probably also take stock of with regard to the lack of attention to nationalism, which is within the historical profession, the kind of breakdown of interest in the nation as the unit of study, which had to do with a lot of American academic historians – loss of faith in the American nation during the 1960s and 1970s, and the belief that to pay attention to the nation as the object of your historical analysis was to contribute to nationalism. And that, uh, and, and that's a good, that's a fair point. I mean, we can talk historically, I think nationalism, we could, I would push its origins back quite a bit back into the 19th century, not to, not to 1914, but it is a really tangled relationship between the writing of national history and the 
uh, emergence of what we would think of as illiberal nationalism. So that, that it, it really is a very troubling past in the relationship between historians and, and nationalism. But in the 1960s and 70s, remember, like the academy was finally opening up to women and people of color who were entering graduate programs and getting PhDs and entering departments of history and departments of political science. And the objects of their inquiry tended not to be the nation state, which had been the object of a lot of scrutiny. They were interested in thinking about groups uh, whose whose experiences had been left out of the national story. So women and people of color and, you know, founded ethnic studies and black studies and women's sexuality studies programs within the academy and looked that the, the nation was not the unit that they were curious about. They were curious about other constituencies and they were interested in conflict among groups. So they, they were taking down what historians call the consensus school of American historiography, the idea that, that, that American politics had been a consensual politics and said, well, well, yeah, if you only look at certain people, you can see consensus. But if you look at everybody else, you see a story of conflict. So there was a real revolution in the the research agenda of American historians in the 60s and 70s. And uh, uh, Carl Daigle, who's the Stanford historian I write about in, in this piece in Foreign Affairs, had been part of that revolution. He uh, he had been uh, an early feminist. He was one of the founding members of the National Organization of Women. His own scholarship was largely about race and Jim Crow and slavery. But by the 1980s, when I think it's, it's maybe by the late 1980s that the American Studies Association actually proposes dropping the word American from the title of the organization. By that point, Degler is kind of blanched at it all and said, you know, it's really important that we study, that we've kind of have this much more inclusive and broad and deeply researched and nuanced history of the peoples of the United States. But it's also dangerous to fail to study the nation. This is a aside from our main theme, but I, you sent me a copy of your book, um, These Truths, which is a great title. It's a I'd mention as well, and I was struck by it's a bold achievement. It's 961 pages. Um, there's there are a lot of footnotes, but still, it's a very long book. Uh, it's beautifully written. Uh, the opening it's worth reading. You know, you can cheat if you want. I hate to encourage listeners, but you could go pick it up at a bookstore and just read the first few pages while you're staying there. It's quite beautiful. It's eloquent. Um, but it's hard to write the history of a nation. It's much more tempting uh, to think about, say, Robert Caro's massive enterprise. He's also writing the history of the nation, but he's doing it through a, a sort of great man uh, lens, LBJ. And you know, people who think, well, why would I want to read a N-volume biography of Lyndon Baines Johnson? The answer is, well, it's, he's a lot more interesting than you think. And the book's more than just about LBJ. It's really a history of the countries from of starting in the 20th century. So it's an amazing achievement. So to do it from a longer form, as you've done, it's uh, daunting. And so I would assume a lot of people would find it just simply easier and more attractive to do uh, a great man or great woman theory of history and to focus on groups or tension or conflict, that, as you've mentioned. Just reflect on that. Yeah, no, it is really, it's really hard. It takes a lot of audacity. It used to be, though, a kind of conventional career capstone, right? You would, most distinguished American historians for many years, when they got to a certain point in their career, they would do this work that was in some ways kind of giving back, uh, the sense of civic, like sort of uh, meeting a civic obligation, right? Mm-hmm. Like you spend your career studying American history, you know a lot about it. Uh, you teach year in and year out, and you know it, it's kind of an obligation to the country that you presented a, a book of American history. Now, if you're studying, if you're an American whose specialty is medieval France, you don't have that obligation. It's not a burden that you bear. It's not an obligation as a citizen. But for an American historian, especially an American historian whose work is wide ranging or and far reaching. It was just the thing that you did. I mean, if you go back and look at you know the sort of distinguished or even the not very distinguished American historians of earlier generations, there's always someone who says, and to be honest, like this was it's it's a kind of act of bravado, right? Like it sure. is a, it's a stage, you know, like it's a tour de Theodore force. Roosevelt wrote, you know, the winning of the West, and Woodrow Wilson wrote his history of the American people. You know, there are these kind of big sweeping 
you know, there's an equivalent in European yeah, history, which, you know, these, these kind of like March of the Monarchs books, right? You know, from for, from King John to Henry VIII. And th- that is, a whole, there's a whole tradition of that in the United States. And that kind of historian who paid very little attention to anybody but the presidents or the acts of Congress, that kind of historian stopped being produced really in some ways, right? Like it's both that kind of training, a specific interest in the great glory, the great, great, the great men, uh, the March of the monarchs, the, the, the parade of the presidents that there isn't, that really doesn't go on in academic history anymore. So weird. And I, I, and I think to be honest, much to the better. I, I, there's a, there are a lot more stories to tell about how, how change happens, the role of economic forces in history, the role of technology in history, why the law is essential for understanding larger patterns of change, how social movements work. Like there's a lot else to study and it's been nothing but enriching for people to do other kinds of work. But that tradition continues in popular history, which is generally not written by academic historians, but written by journalists, but instead written by journalists, I I would put Caro in a different category. I would put Bob Dalek in a different category. There are people who write presidential histories who are writing in an academic way. That is, they're biographers, but they're they meet the standards of evidence and the the rules of exposition that we have as in academic history. But then there's a kind of big batch of presidential biographers who are not actually asking big questions about how change happens. They are offering us intimate portraits of presidents. And in a way, and that's the kind of history book you see when you wander into the bookstore, you know, in in the mall. And in a way, I think that actually is a challenge for our public culture and our political culture because it magnifies the role of the president. It kind of contributes to presidentialism. Like we, I think Americans think that American political history really is about what different presidents said and did. And it really is not, right? Like, Like we know... As an enormous a character as Donald Trump is and as influential as his decisions are on American political culture, you couldn't possibly write the history of the last few years without attending to, you know, the immigration debate locally, to the Me Too movement or to the Black Lives Matter movement or, you know, all manner of events going on in the United States and around the world that aren't actually – they don't really revolve around the day-to-day biographical details of Donald Trump. And because we magnify the role of the president so much because of the way our popular history is chiefly constituted of presidential biography, we're less able to see those relationships. And of course, he's a manifestation of a lot of the things that you'd want to write about and understand if you're going to understand what's going on right now. He's not simply the, the great man or not so great man moving events on his own. My naivete, which I'll confess, as an economist looking at political events, I've always believed, now I think foolishly, that presidents and parties, of course, are embedded in forces of economics and and politics, what we call incentives and market forces in economics, and that politicians are forced by those forces to act in ways that aren't uh, necessarily what you'd expect in advance. They often turn out to be more like their opponents than you expected. I think what we're living through right now is a wake-up call for that view, a little bit of a, um, hey, don't be so naive. Uh, it's not as straightforward as it seems to have been. Uh, I used to even argue that it's not so important who the president is because they're subject to these forces. And, and there's some truth to that. If you look at data on or even policy decisions, Sometimes it's very hard to see whether it's a Democrat or Republican, but um, I feel like those days are over and um, a different perspective is warranted. You know, when you talk about uh, the audacity of writing that history, you're saying something more than that in your article, which is uh, it's important to write that history. The national story we tell about ourselves or come to believe about ourselves is more than just a bedtime story for our children. It actually affects the way the world looks and the way it then turns out. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm going to just jump back to what you were previously reflecting on, which is sort of your vantage on how change happens as an economist. And I I, I absolutely agree that, you know, those of us who do work in an intellectual discipline all day tend to 
think the world actually <laughs> subscribes know. to the models that we carry around <laughs> in our head. It's helpful to think that, you know, Suckers. you're going to have kind of more of an economically deterministic model than I do. I yep. don't often feel like I see much evidence of, uh, I, I, it's just not how the world works in my imagination. I think the public tends to have a, at the moment, given our popular culture, a technologically deterministic model of how change happens. Like if it's the new, you know, you can kind of track change over time by which iPhone you have. Like people just think that it's technology that drives history at this moment. I myself don't believe that. I don't think markets drive history. I think social movements drive history. That tends to be where I see the most uh, animation. But the obligation of the historian is to take all of those forms of explanation or also, you know, faith driving history, religious organizations and institutions and beliefs and practices driving change, right? Or changes in the laws. Like there are a lot of different ways that people understand how change happens. And surely we're not all right and we're also not all wrong. And the obligation of someone trying to take on the big sweeping story is to kind of try to set aside your, even your disciplinary predilections and say, all right, well, let's just take this as a whole and figure out what's like a plausible set of explanations to give that people can read and digest and make legible to them, identify patterns, and then people can quibble with it. Like it, history is an ongoing argument and it, and it should be. And that, to get to the second comment that, and the question that you raised, is why it is important for historians who care about evidence and argument and fair-mindedness uh, to try to do the work of pulling together some kind of a national story, knowing that it's not etched in stone and doesn't become, you know, the law of the land, but it's just a continuation of the argument because people need that. People need to have an explanation for why the nation exists. I mean, it's not, you know, the, the boundaries of the United States are not uh, natural. Yes, there, there's no oceans and there's some mountains. Like there are, there are, there are topographical features, but you know, nations are an artifice. They're a creation of, they're created at historical moments. And this particular nation is largely the creation of a set of political ideas that are hard ideas. They're really difficult ideas and you have to get them in order to have a sense of belonging. And in order to really get them, you actually have to have a sense of where they came from. And you have to be able to ask yourself, are they, are these ideas true? Uh, are, are, and if they're true, do I care about them? And how do I express my concern for them? That's the obligation of, of a citizen in a democracy. And if, if people who care about writing decent history that's fair and broad-minded, don't do it, then other people step in and they, they, they offer up, you know, a kind of garbage history that's narrow and instrumental and deeply partisan and about propping up a particular vision of the, of the past of the country in order to promote a particular vision for the future of the country. And that's, that's really complicated. And that, in fact, is what a liberal nationalism is, right? It's when it's when you make an argument about why the nation exists that uh, is an argument about a kind of destiny that um, that holds the nation above all others, that asks for loyalty to the nation above all other loyalties, and that refuses to subject the nation to scrutiny or... Uh, to the attention of possible critics. And that really is dangerous. You called that illiberal nationalism a second ago, correct? Yeah, I mean, following- I thought you said liberal, but you said illiberal. Illiberal, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a convention in writing about nationalism and it's it's highly controversial <laughs> to do this, but uh, a, a lot of people who write about nationalism would draw a distinction between liberal and illiberal nationalism, which are sometimes called ethnic- uh, illiberal national being, being nationalism being ethnic and liberal national uh, being civic nationalism and nationalism founded in the idea uh, of the government itself of the citizenry and its relationship to the government. Um, there's think, a lot of there's a lot of criticism of that division, but I think it's useful. Yeah, I, oh, for some people, liberal nationalism is the good kind and illiberal is the bad kind, and you can throw in there whatever you want. I I just want to clarify one thing when when I said I have an economic perspective on on uh, on history, I meant not a material one, but more an incentive one. So that mm-hmm. promises that 
politicians make that turn out to be quite expensive to keep, they don't keep. Uh, they're just uh, pushed aside. Uh, that that forces of uh, – they can be ideological or they can be uh, faith-based or they can be many, many things, cultural is a better way to say it, that those matter and that and that politicians come to represent those things rather than lead. And so that's my what I want to reject a little bit in recent in recent times. You, you said something um, I think kind of powerful a, a second ago when you're talking about the importance of a national story. You said you talked about belonging and belonging is something I've been thinking about. We talk about a reasonable amount in this program because of um, what I would call the the uh, rise of tribalism, and you mentioned that in, in your essay, and that it's really not the rise of, it's been there all the time. But we do like to, as human beings, belong to something. And it strikes me that that fewer and fewer people want to see their nation state in America until recently, that fewer and fewer people saw that as a place to find and express that tribalism, to find that sense of belonging. They'd rather find it in their sports team or their religion or their race or their uh, gender or anything but but America. America seems to me until very recently has gone out of fashion. And and that's some of what Don, Donald Trump is, is bringing back for good and bad. But it's certainly something that when I was younger didn't feel very much. And I certainly didn't feel it in the circles I swam in. And I'm curious if you think that that's is it passe or is it coming back? Where are we on that? Yeah, I think I might quibble somewhat with the way you frame it because I'm not sure that this is a brand new crisis. I think the attachment to a vision of the nation on the part of ordinary people waxes and wanes as in fact it must and it's unsurprising that that happens. You know, it is that kind of passion is often whipped up during wartime or in the years before a war, it tends to tends to fall into a crisis after a war, especially uh, for people who bore the brunt of suffering in a war. So there are a lot of patterns that we might detect there. Where it beca- and and that I, that seems to me kind of as it should be. There are other kinds of communities that we really care about. You know, I really care about the city that I live in. I'm really attached to my city as a place. I have a fair amount of loyalty to the state that I live in, and. I, I, I'm, I'm not a state's rights person, but I, I, I think of myself, I, I have a, I'm a regionalist. Like, I so am a New Englander. Like, I understand myself as a New Englander. Um, so we, it's, it, it's not inconsistent to have many, many different kinds of belonging. Uh, I, I'm a Catholic. I think of myself as a member of the Catholic Church. Like, I, like we, we have many, and that's fine. Uh, so it might be that at some points in your life or my life or on the, you know, in, uh, on a timeline that the, you know, attachment to the idea of being an American is, is stronger or, or less passionately felt. All of that seems fine. And that fluidity, it seems completely understandable. What's tricky is when that divides along party lines and where that becomes, Becomes a source of uh, becomes a kind of partisan weapon for one party to call another party or or even just a wing of the party kind of un-American or insufficiently patriotic, and that too has happened a lot over time, um, and fairly at fairly regular intervals because uh, it it's useful in waging political battle to to invoke that. It's a kind yeah. of the um, it's a it's a ballistic missile, right? To call your political opponent un-American, it should I think should be pretty f- far outside the realm of political discourse that any self-respecting politician would engage in, because that's just making you know your fellow citizens into enemies of the state. I mean that's that's nuts, and it's it's just it's just objectively bad. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen a lot. What's I guess the the in thinking of the last half century, it has become kind of complicated because because of the schism over the Vietnam War, where uh, the new left, which emerged, you know, in the 1960s, 
you know, was essentially essentially emerged out of the anti-war movement. And the new right, which, you know, began its rise to power in the 1960s, emerged, you know, they, both of these political persuasions had many different sources, but very much kind of on other, on, on opposite sides with regard to the war, and then dug their heels into that, into those positions. And you see, by the time you get to 1975, which is the beginning of the bicentennial celebration, the bicent, you know, the bicentennial of the American Revolution, and 76 is going to be the bicentennial of the Declaration of Independence, that the right really wants to celebrate the, um, the bicentennial, and the left wants to essentially protest it. And this becomes a kind of, it's just like a proving ground about what Americans are willing to say about their attachment to the country. So I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, Lyndon Johnson started this um, bicentennial commission, I think, in 1964, like, because there was already, like, the anniversary of the Sugar Act and, you know, the resistance uh, movement that leads to the American Revolution, and put a whole bunch of people on trying to make a really inclusive board to think about how to celebrate the bicentennial in the age of, you know, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and how to kind of have an inclusive vision for how to celebrate the bicentennial. And when Richard Nixon took office in 69, he basically kicked all those people off of the bicentennial programming board and put on a bunch of other people who wanted a much narrower vision of how to celebrate the bicentennial. So then there was an opposition commission called the People's Bicentennial Commission, which was kind of like the anti-bicentennial commission. And and they were promoting two completely, this is like academic historians were not involved in any of this, but they were promoting two completely different visions of American history. You know, one was, you know, the official bicentennial celebration would be, you know, the march of the March of freedom from the founding fathers and their tricornered hats and their knee breeches, you know, all the way down to the great Richard Nixon. And then the People's Bicentennial Commission was essentially a history of American atrocity. Right. You know, all the way down to the Vietnam War, and so both of those are actually American, yeah. right? Like we we both can disagree. The <laughs> we, we, they're both part of the story. Like, but the but that's the point at which American historians stopped writing national history because people kind of just threw up their hands and said, "There's no winning at this game," because you know Howard Zinn out of that writes the People's History of the United States. He's involved in that People's Bicentennial Movement, and he decides that the country needs a new history, and he writes this essentially Marxist history of the country. Uh, so that's sort of, like on, on the left, that becomes the national history. And on the right, there's this whole series of things, like all the way down to Glenn Beck's like schoolroom studio teaching American history, and these really kind of quacky, kooky, descendants of that Nixon Bicentennial Commission history where we're like, we will just whitewash the story of American history. And so there's no there's no bridge between those two camps, which are purely ideologically driven accounts of the United States that are a part of political warfare over the agony, the political anguish of Vietnam and its legacy, right? So you can sort of see why historians like I'm not going to write national history anywhere during those years. But then you come down to the 1980s and globalism, and every, now all the talented people are writing global history and engaged in global studies. And that's where Degler kind of finally gives his kind of wail of despair. Like, well, but the country still needs a story that, that like that's not one of these two ideological stories, but something you know that 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 attempts to be fair. Uh, and it's like that's the spirit in which I wrote my book. Was like it. It's been a really long time since since someone has tried to do that. I mean, there are U.S. history textbooks, and many of them are fantastic. And I don't mean to dismiss. Then I was good as yours. Come on. <laughs> yeah. They're they're you know they're they're textbooks written for college students, and they you know they tend to be written by a team of people, and you know they are what they are. I don't think you won't meet a lot of people who say they really loved their high school American history textbook because they're not they're not beautiful. They're not meant to hold people together or stir. They're just, a, they're, they're a textbook. So it was kind of in, in heeding the call that Degler had made that I wrote this book that tries, you know, that, that tr tr tries to pull all the pieces together to not be undertaking it, ideological partisan warfare and the writing of history. Uh, I'm not, I'm not re-waging the Vietnam pro and anti-war movements, uh, in this book. Uh, I'm, there are many other things I could easily stand accused of. There are many absences. There's all kinds of, you know, there are errors in the book. Like it's, it's only 900 pages. Too long. <laughs> um, 
but I guess I stand by it. It's still a useful thing to do. And I, I would say that since the book came out, I mean, the, the day the book came out, I got an email from someone who had pre-ordered it and had got it on the publication day. I was like going to New York for like a party with my publisher to celebrate the book being published. And before I got to the party, I got an email from this woman who had pre-ordered, she'd got it that morning and she'd spent the entire day reading it and she had finished it. And she sent me this unbelievably email. It said like, I learned so much. I, I so needed this book and I think I can love my country again. Like it was this, I was like in agony, just like crying reading this email because it's why I wrote the book. I mean, there is a, the book is not that march of freedom. It's not the the history of American atrocity. It's kind of the whole kit and caboodle. (laughs) And um, he asks readers to to do their own, you know, moral and political reckoning uh, from what, historians have been finding in the archives in the last 50 years and what we know and what we still don't know and and how we can't say where the country should go but here's what the evidence tells us and i it's i get email every day i mean i get like a huge amount of reader response from the book and it's it's um it's really powerful to hear people say how much they they didn't realize how much they needed this book until they read it it reminds me of um Thinking about our parents, I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but our need to tell a consistent story when we're young, my parents are awful, my parents are great. And in fact, like most things on Econ Talk, they're complicated. Um, complicated usually doesn't sell so well. Uh, people like the good guy, bad guy theory and story and narrative. And so nuance is awkward. But it strikes me that the United States has done a lot of bad things and a lot of extraordinary things, and it's complicated. And that's not necessarily the story that people want to hold to their breast. They want to have either love or anguish only. And I think that's a human impulse that, um, you know, I understand that. But um, but let's, let's turn away. Let's turn away. I want to come back to, to your essay and the question of nationalism. Uh, why do you think it's on the rise? And of course, it's not just the United States. It's it's on the rise in lots of places around the world that it was quiet in before. What's um, what do you think's changed? Uh, well, I do want to get to that, but I just I can't help but say one thing about your family metaphor yeah, um, because it's a little bit trickier in a nation where. If what you want is the story in which the United States has only done good things, you are actually kind of committing a kind of intellectual violence against the people to whom the United States has done terrible things. You know what I mean? Like if you can't confront squarely and in the eye the story of slavery, the story of Jim Crow, you you know what I mean? You, like then then it's you're just erasing the history of your fellow citizens. So. There, and similarly, if you want to tell a story that's only about, you know, the genocide of indigenous peoples, well, what about the heroism of people who gave their lives to defend democracy around the world as uh, representatives of the United States? Like, you, you can't, like, it, it's, you, a you can't just choose, a bet- you can't pick and choose your own version of the his, nation's past because you are not the only person in the country. No, but I, I We're think- all... Here. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the difference is, and I tried to extend the and defend my parental analogy for a minute. Um, sure, like when I go to a funeral, and I try to go to funerals because I think they're powerful experiences. And I, even for, I tend not to go to funerals of strangers, but it's an interesting idea. But I tend to try to go to funerals of loved ones and friends, and and friends of love, loved ones of friends, uh, and. I'm always struck by um, how saintly the person was, and um, I always wonder, is that the natural hyperbole of a eulogy, or is maybe the people really were extraordinary, and many people are, of course. But I also recognize that, you know, at a funeral, it's not a time to bear the warts of of the people we um, we come from. And similarly, although I might recognize that the United States is deeply flawed— um, we hold these truths to be self-evident. 
is pretty extraordinary. And I might choose to focus on that or hold that close to my breast and be ashamed of when I'm forced to remember the bad stuff or vice versa. Now, you could go the other way, of course, and and say, I think the United States is a bad country. Of course, I concede it's done some good things. But I think it's very natural to try to to have a, a vision of what, let's say, it could be. And I think that's an important part of the national story that a somewhat unnuanced history allows. And I, even to defend it a little bit further, I think that while certainly the founders were incredibly hypocritical in their statements, they set an ideal that forced the people who came after them to live up to, even if they didn't want to. So I think it's there's something there. Yeah, I still think I, I, I grant all of that, but I think that's really civic myth. And we might agree that there's a real place for civic myth in a culture. And I, you know, I spend a lot of time in public schools in my city and I love watching the third graders dress up as, you know, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin and, and do the revolutionary pageant. And that's important. And it it's a national folklore. And I recognize that it is that is not the time in the third grade classroom to think about the regime of immigration restriction in the 1924 National Origins Act. You know, like that's not well said. But that is that is that is uh, national folklore, and history is an academic discipline that has rules and standards of evidence and criteria for argument. And I think it's a mistake to expect that because it, American history happens to also overlap with a national folklore that we accept as adults, the national folklore. Uh, it's a little bit like telling a chemist, well, chemistry seems very interesting, uh, but I like alchemy. I mean, I think alchemy is really fun <laughs> and it makes me feel good to imagine that you could make gold this way, you know, or telling an astronomer like astronomy that you do some fascinating calculations there. But actually, you know, at the end of the day, I just want to read my horoscope. I believe in astrology. Like, I don't think it's it's weird that we have we accept that there is a lesser version of a careful, cautious, honest, evidence based uh, historical scholarship that we should just put up with because it it it, it suits it sort of suits us. I I think it's tricky. I mean, not that I don't concede that 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 other thing is important. I just where the boundaries are between that and what we it's we just don't have to have different names for it. Like the way you know you could separate out alchemy and chemistry and astrology and astronomy. We call both of these things history. Yeah, that's true. You know, like and 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 it, it I think it gets a little bit a little bit complicated. Um. In any case, we, well, we, we could spend forever I'm, thinking about well, what makes history. Well, I stay but, with, but I want to yeah. stay on this for a sec. We'll come back to the nationalism question I raised. In your title of your piece, you say why a nation needs a national story. And I, I, I guess what I'm thinking when I, when I said what I did is that we've had various national stories in the United States. Some of them were, were grotesque. They left out a role for all kinds of groups and different people. Uh, some of them ignored important things that were healthy and helpful. And that's your Vietnam, your Bicentennial Commission. Those are two different national stories, neither of which was, quote, accurate. Uh, it just strikes me that in today's world, the idea of a national story that, that the American people could somehow accept or come together on or embrace is is very far away. And, and I'm struck by your remark about calling your opponents un-American. When Sebastian Younger was on this program, we're talking about his his book Tribe, he talks in that book, and I think we talked about it on the program, about how destructive it is when you describe your opponents as un-American. You're basically calling them treasonous, which is usually a – comes with a death penalty. It's um, – so I worry a lot about whether the country is, is irrevocably uh, torn right now. Does that worry you? And does my yeah, worries I, make sense about no, a national story? I, I worry about it too. But then I, I – one of the reasons I don't really panic about it is we actually have a magnificently enfranchised democratic populace right now. And that in American history is fairly new. <laughs> you know, women didn't get the right to vote until 1920 or weren't guaranteed it. I mean, they had it in many states. Uh, and African-Americans weren't – really guaranteed on the ground 
the right to vote until the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s. So we are wrestling with a, a much bigger political community and have been for the last half century. And that's hard work. And I don't think it has worked as well as it should, but I do think it can work better. Uh, I, I guess I just, it doesn't seem to me like, oh, for hundreds of years, we've been struggling this and we've gotten nowhere. It seems to me like, no, people were completely silenced politically for hundreds of years. <laughs> and now that everybody can talk, uh, it's harder. It's harder to listen. It's harder to engage in the conversation. The conversation is messier. It's a little more painful. Uh, we have had some national political figures who've been very good at calling people people to their to be their best selves in the public forum, and we've had national leaders who have been very effective at instructing people on how to be their worst selves in a public forum. So, it, it, I guess it's. There's a hard road, uh, but that we don't currently seem altogether keen on sharing a national story and a common political ancestry isn't an argument against trying to provide one. I love your optimism. I used to feel that way. <laughs> I used to think we were part of this great process, very self-correcting. We muddle through uh, this great uh, respectful transition of power. Past leaders are respectful and helpful to the country once they get out of office. Uh, there's a great tradition of, of uh, mutual respect among living presidents. Uh, I feel like we're entering a different set of uncharted waters there, but maybe maybe I'm too pessimistic. Well, I guess I would say, you know, I, I, some of my most beloved political and literary heroes made a very strong, have made very strong arguments for the importance of public figures modeling hopefulness. So uh, I might be faking it, but <laughs> I actually pretty determined. Okay. Uh, you can't have a political future if you can't imagine it. Yeah. Well, oh, there's some destroyers out there. I don't know. But uh, well, let's go back to my other question. Why do you think nationalism is on the rise in Europe and here? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's the same set of forces behind populism, which chiefly, historically, populism and nationalism rose in the United States and in other parts of the world when – large swaths of the population were both fairly recently politically enfranchised and quite dramatically left behind economically. And so have a political voice. But the thing that they want to say is, I have nothing. Yeah, what about me? Uh, and that's really an important protest. Um, but it can be very easily turned to ill political effect by authoritarians who can gather up all that misery, put it in a sack, throw the sack over their arm and kind of march to the national capital and take power. So that's where we're at. You write uh, at one point, a few years later, after the onset of the civil war in Bosnia, the political philosopher Michael Walzer grimly announced that the quote, the tribes have returned. You continue. They had never left. They'd only become harder for historians to see because they weren't really looking anymore. And I do feel like in the populist movements, uh, in, in certainly in, in the United Kingdom, in England and in, and in the United States, the call to nationalism and the attraction of nationalism is a feeling of, of tribal belonging that has either eluded those folks elsewhere or just suddenly is more appealing. Yeah, I think it also has, and I didn't write about this in the piece, but I think it has, it, it to many, in, has a lot in common with uh, religious revivals, which I would have expected a religious, big religious revival to explode any minute now, because religious revivals tend to happen in the aftermath of a very significant, uh, like a, essentially a sea, a sea change in the body of knowledge, and uh, you know, or received 
notions of the, uh, how we understand the natural world. So I think the kind of, you know, the accelerating, the sort of knowledge vault, vault metaphor of the internet and the kind of revolution in machine learning and artificial intelligence and all the anxiety about a world of knowing that most people don't understand at all is just the kind of thing to set off a religious revival. And it's just the kind of thing that also kind of invests uh, people who are left behind economically with a deep, a deeper and quite reasonable anxiety. I mean, I don't think, I think it's important to state about the appeal of, of, uh, of any kind of populism left or right, or any kind of nationalism that, that the, the appeal, the emotional appeal, the political misery uh, that drives that attraction, those are real. Those aren't fictive. I, I agree. Um, although I do think there's a lot of misunderstanding, as longtime listeners know, of the actual state of affairs here. And the challenge, of course, is that it's hard to figure out what caused those problems. But if you're in that situation of, say, economic anxiety, insecurity, loss, misery, you don't really care about the causation. <laughs> you just want to line up behind somebody who says they're going to fix it, even if their tools are not going to do the job. And especially if they're willing to point the finger at someone else, you have other reasons to kind of hate. So it's the it's the attachment of blame. It's an yeah. attachment, which which is an explanation, right? Like it's not your it's not your fault. You know, you, things are hard for you, and it's true. It's not your fault, but it's actually this person's fault. That's very appealing. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, it's bad, but it's good. I got it. Uh, in, you have an essay in the New Yorker on facts, a fascinating uh, essay that will link to, and we'll, of course, link to the essay on foreign affairs as well. And you talk about the challenge of, um, you alluded to it a minute ago with talking about the internet, uh, of figuring out what's going on. And I'm struck by this paradox that there's been no time in human history that as large a share of human beings can find out stuff as right now. So the access that people have to Facts, data, stories, theories, models, narratives is unparalleled. You, you can you can find an unimaginable amount of stuff relative to 25 years ago, and stuff that you used to had to journey to the library to find, or the university, the public library, or the university library, and even then you'd struggle to find a bunch of it, and it would be tedious. And so most people never bothered, and we did the best we could. Now we have this unbelievable access. We have. Even programs like Econ Talk, where people can hear world-class historians talk about American history, and yet at the same time, uh, nobody's really quite sure—at least they shouldn't be—of what's true or not. And, and I find that juxtaposition quite extraordinary and quite fascinating. And you allude to it in your piece when you talk about the fact um, you write uh, somewhere in the middle of the 20th century: fundamentalism and postmodernism, the religious right and the academic left met up. Either the only truth is the truth of the divine or there is no truth. For both, empiricism is an error. And I, that's all in play right now, it feels like. And I, I don't know how that's going to play out. It doesn't feel so good. Yeah, it's a very it's a very tricky moment. And I think the other element of that in terms of the authority most easily available to most people historically, it's certainly for the full history of the United States as a republic, was the daily newspaper. Uh, I have a piece in the New Yorker from a couple of weeks ago called Hard News that says sort of an assessment of the state of journalism, looking at a lot of recent work, but also the, lo the longer history. And, you know, the Daily Newspaper, for all its flaws, was a place where people went to find out, you know, what, what happened and what's about to happen. <laughs> and uh, that, uh, how yeah. newspapers worked in terms of uh, the editorial judgment used, you know, and there were, there were, there's a guild, there's a profession, there are standards, there are rules, people get fired for breaking them. Uh, it's really important arbiter of information, and I would say broadly, culturally, the editor, the uh, the, the work of editing, uh, is hugely important to this the political stability of most of the world through most of modernity, and it's one of those things we haven't paid a lot of attention to, but. Having people whose sole job it is is to decide, like, is this something of interest to the public? Should it be on the front page? If on the front page, who's the best prepared reporter to write about it? Uh, and when this reporter submits this piece, has it 
is it is it written with fairness? Uh, is this statement really well enough supported, or shall I cut it? Should I ask the reporter to go back and get a statement from this person who stands accused of something here? Then this is piece is going to go to the legal counsel of the newspaper. Like there, there's a whole process. Uh, you know, there's also you know, what has come to be called fact-checking, but there's a whole process about establishing whether or not something should be in the newspaper. And what you do when you subscribe to a daily newspaper is rely on that editorial process. And you could still disagree and you could say, well, this newspaper should have covered that. And there are all kinds of problems with daily papers uh, in the in the, in the the golden age of, of American journalism. But there's a certain surety around... Uh, at least the knowability and accountability of the of the process, and I, it's it's not much often written about. But you know, we live in a world where there are basically hardly any editors. Right, most of what is published day to day, minute by minute, is put online without the consultation of any editor. Uh, I do think it's why uh, traditional news organizations are far more important than they have ever been before. You know, NPR or the Wall Street Journal or The Economist or The New York Times. Like, There's not a local equivalent that is thriving, but national news organizations uh, are, are extremely important. The trick is, has, has been widely observed, with the exception of something like NPR, which is obviously both subsidized and run on philanthropy, and on other uh, and on gifts and memberships, all that stuff is expensive. So we have an asymmetrical world of information in which, if you can afford to pay for it, you can get very good information. But if you don't have any money to pay for it, or you're not willing to pay for it, all the information is bad. So it's. That is very politically volatile. It's an extremely politically volatile situation. Yeah, I, I love what you said. I, although I suspect I have some romance about it, and 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 when I think about that romance, I wonder then if it's true. I, those norms of what goes in the paper and the reliability we placed on the daily paper, I think they were there. Uh, they were there were certain guardrails that kept things within certain boundaries, and those rails are more or less gone now. There are a few publications that still have them, but in general, news organizations are driven by uh, their economic incentives. I talked about them in a recent episode and in a couple of essays that it's um, you sell stuff that makes people feel good about themselves. You don't, you're not trying to create a civic record or, a, or the news that you think is appropriate or important. Now, that process was flawed. It was biased. It had some of those those safeguards were illusions, but it's certainly different now. And I would say the same thing is true of the political boundaries, uh, things that were unacceptable, the things that a president say or presidential candidate can and cannot say. Uh, those are off the board right now. We'll see if they come back with different kinds of candidates in the future. But uh, I expect uh, that the 2020 election, no matter who the Democrats pick, is going to be uh, – rather different from past elections, uh, and the campaigning will be different. I understand America's always had some ugly sides to it uh, in the political process, but I, I think the important thing is this issue of truth and, and being informed. I, I'm i just increasingly postmodern myself. I'm nothing of a postmodernist, but I certainly have their respect for the, illusion, the elusiveness of truth, and I there are so many things today that I'm unsure of and agnostic about, and um, I hear a lot of people who aren't, <laughs> who are very confident, and that just is really hard for me because I know they're, none of us are well-informed at all. So I find this uh, climate extremely unmooring and, and, uh, and, and challenging. Well, I would say two things about that. First, I would say I have a lot of students who are, you know, go into journalism and do incredible work. And I have huge respect for reporters, including reporters who are risking their lives to get at the truth. Sure. And uh, I think I work for a national news organization for which I have huge respect. So we can share a lot of cynicism about what's going on with mass media at the moment. And 
a lot of things are off the guardrails, but not everything is off the guardrails. And sure enough. Uh, it's like, like it's important. It's like sort of like it's it's like when people bash public school teachers. I'm like, you know what? They're like the best people in the world. <laughs> like, like let's like think about like good people doing this work. How hard it is to do. It's hard to make a living at it. Uh, there are not a lot of jobs. It's it's vital to our democracy. So I think it's important to sort of celebrate all that is good in that world. Um, secondly, though, I think it is a problem that we all feel just as unmoored as you do, because for young people in particular, they, I don't think they they enter adulthood from a place where they once knew how to find something out and know if it was true, and now they don't, which is how most of us, I think, feel, or my generation feels. Um, they enter adulthood having never really known. And what they're often taught, like my students come to class, when when you ask them to look at a piece of evidence, what they, the tool, the one tool they have, I mean, I think of it as they want to play the game spot the bias. Like they're very good at doing that. Like they can, they can, you can give them a document and they can tell you how worthless it is, but it's, it's really hard for them to figure out what it's worth is. Like, I, no, I don't, all right, we like, all right, we're all, we're grownups. Like postmodernism happened. Like we understand all knowledge is situated. Everything is socially constructed, like fine. But now we live. still have to yeah. find out how to know, like, should I buy beans today or was, do I only have peas at home? Like you, there's still things to know and to make decisions about. And so what are our rules of evidence? What are the standards in which we engage in argument? How do we make sure that we're engaging in argument fairly based on what we know and what our opponent has presented and how can we check? Like there, it, it, it's, it's a, sort of a weird, it's a weird moment. because like people kind of throw up their hands as if there are no tools when all of human civilization has been about the acquisition and refinement of tools for knowing why things are the way they are in the world <laughs> so so that people can lead lives and make good decisions. So I there too, this is not, I'm not faking optimism here. I do actually think that it, it actually just requires a kind of commitment around, all right, here are some things that are not working for us. Social media doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't help you arrive at the truth. But it's not that we haven't been in this situation before. Uh, I often think about it, I tell the story in these truths, the story of the Scopes trial in 1925. You know, John Scopes is a biology teacher in Tennessee, and he's sort of put up by the ACLU to test this new law in Tennessee that bans the teaching of Darwinism. And uh, it becomes basically a celebrity a show trial because uh, William Jennings Bryan, the fundamentalist, comes down to uh, prosecute him on behalf of the state of Tennessee, and the great defense attorney, Clarence Darrow, comes down to defend John Scopes, and they have this big show trial in this towny little town of, of Dayton, Tennessee. But there's this great essay written about the Scopes trial by Walter Lippmann, the just an incredible journalist, and <laughs> Lippmann uh, imagines that, oh, Brian is dead, and Brian and Thomas Jefferson are having an argument in front of Socrates in the afterlife, and it's just a hilarious essay, but the essay is sort of about, you know, Jefferson saying, like, I believe in religious freedom, and I also believe in the rule of the majority, and Brian saying, well, the majority, that is, the, the democratically elected legislature of Tennessee decided that Darwinism is wrong. It is an error, and so therefore cannot be taught. And so it would be, it's a violation of majority rule. And Jefferson is trying to say, well, but as a matter of, you know, religious freedom, intellectual freedom, people should be able to evaluate Darwinism. And it, they, ha they kind of come to a very terrifying impasse where Lippmann is trying to point out that we have erected a system of knowledge and of politics of government in which the majority can decide what's true. And that was a hundred years ago. <laughs> That's before the internet and social media, right? Like, cause now we really do have that system. We didn't quite have it then. Like there is still a kind of battle of fact and error that goes on in the 1920s. Uh, but we do have that world now, right? Like where if it rises to the top of your Google search, it's knowledge suddenly. And that uh, it's, it is a kind of, end game version of direct democracy, but it's the intersection with, uh, of, gov of a kind of system of rule, or in this case, algorithmic rule with, you know, a system of knowledge. And they don't really, they don't really intersect very well. I mean, I, in that piece, the New Yorker piece, after the fact that you mentioned, I quote Larry Page, uh, founder of Google saying, you know, yeah, uh, 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 that eventually we'll have an implant, we'll have implant 
science in our head. Whereas if we want to, if we want to know a fact, we just have to think of it and we'll be told it. And it's like, I don't know what you mean by we, Larry, because like, I'm not getting that input. Like yeah. that, we're already there, you know, we're really close to there and it's Too terrible because yeah. nobody knows anything. Well, I'm gonna, so, I want to defend social media for a second, which is uh, I've spent a lot of time on here complaining about it at various times, but I have to confess that for all the negativity I, that I see on Twitter, it, it's a source of tremendous intellectual exploration for me uh, because of the people I've chosen to follow and, and their creativity and their reading and what they find and uncover and unearth for me to explore and, and send me to. And um, yes, there's some really unpleasant people. I, I've decided I'm going to block them. I feel horrible doing it. It's just so unnatural to me to block somebody who I I fear I might be blocking because I disagree with. And it turns out I, I'm blocking them because they're not nice to at all and not nice to me and make me feel bad. And I don't really have to read what they write. It's a choice. So it's very liberating. And I've got a better feeling about, I'm only blocked like two people, but it's somehow, uh, it's very empowering and, and liberating. I think the fear, so I, I'm not so, like you, I, I'm not so keen on that implant. I don't like having uh, uh, Alexa in my house who might be listening in. And uh, so I, that whole thing creeps me out a little bit. And I think reasonably, uh, reasonably so. But what worries me is the siloing of people into groups that only consume what makes them feel good about themselves, who consume narratives. And so I think we're really good at figuring out things about whether our car is going to be a good car for us or this restaurant's a good rest, good choice for me, or this movie, or the books that Amazon recommends for me. Those have gotten a lot, that, that part of my life has gotten so much better than 25, 30 years ago. Music, for sure, with Spotify, it's glorious. Uh, it's the political part, the philosophical part, the ideological part that makes me nervous because it's hard to know the truth about these things anyway. They're all complex. And some people just, they hold the narratives that make them feel good, which is a human impulse, Um and it's cheap. It doesn't cost them a lot to be wrong. We can hold beliefs that are wrong and, and thrive. So that's what makes me uneasy, the ability to manipulate that implant, the uh, ability to feed people stuff that makes them angry, uh, that sees the other side as not just wrong but evil. That's what um, that's what I worry about. Yeah, I mean, I guess my I, – I don't have anything redemptive to say about social media. <laughs> but I what I do – recognize and mourn is the exchanges that it replaces because just to kind of circle around to where we began because we're coming to the close here belonging really matters and belonging online is illusory belonging is something that we as mammals experience in physical proximity to one another and there are other that, you know, phone calls make a difference and FaceTiming with your granddaughter makes a difference. Like there are, there are plenty of incredibly uh, fascinating and powerful technological devices that bring people together with one another. Uh, so I don't mean to suggest that, you know, the only meaningful human contact is in a room together. But one of the things I took stock of a few years ago uh, was the history of public opinion polling, which I actually write a lot about in the, these truths because I'd written a long essay for The New Yorker about it. And really interesting to me was one of the things when campaigns started relying on uh, in-house pollsters and elected officials relying on in-house pollsters, the political machine as it had been previously constructed, which had plenty of problems with it, uh, attenuated significantly. And we are in a much more attenuated version of that because, you know, pollsters used to go door to door and knock and gallops pollsters in the 1930s when modern polling started, have 90 minute conversations with people. Then when enough people got telephones, they started making phone calls. Well, you know, not enough people have landlines anymore. So that kind of polling is, is, has fallen by the wayside, but now actually you don't have to ask anybody anything. You can just find out you know, what they believe through uh, the acquisition of, of, of their search history and whatever other forms of data that you can collect and, and pay for. Um, but even before the door-to-door polling, how campaigns knew how a neighborhood was going was there'd be 
neighborhood workers, precinct workers, neighborhood by neighborhood, who would kind of go door to door. They'd go to the bar. They'd go to the PTA meeting. They'd go to the playground. They'd go to the coffee shop. They would just kind of canvas the neighborhood you know, in teams or one-on-one and spend endless hours talking to people. So that kind of chit-chat of the campaign worker was replaced by the pollster just going to a, a statistically representative sample of the population, which was replaced by the polling telephone company making a few phone calls of statistically and is now doesn't exist anymore at all. But think about this glue, the incredible social and political glue that going back to the start, all those workers going around to the playground and talking to you at the school bus stop or going to the, the grocery store and standing outside and asking voters questions, those conversations, that's what holds a political community together, right? It's those, end, those endless hours. It's like the man on the street interviewing that kind of, you know, a certain kind of newspaper used to do all the time just to get the read of how a vote might go. They'd send out a lot of people to just talk to people on the street. You know, the kind of Kermit the Frog in his trench coat with his microphones <laughs> in Sesame Street. Like that was a thing that people that, that people did, that, that kind of political conversation, which is like, what do you think about that? We don't do that because everybody's t- tweeting and there's data is just gathered by campaigns. That's a piece of a kind of observation about political change that I, I don't know, I find very striking because that's a lot of hours of, of face-to-face political conversation lost. And what's replaced it, you know, as you say, it can, it can often be very edifying. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot to learn from it, but it, it's not the same thing. My guest today has been Joe Lepore. Uh, her book is These Truths. Her coming book is This America, The Case for the Nation. Joe, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks a lot. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.